Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would take these words and you would use them in a way that would bring you honor and glory, that you would help us apply them to our lives, that we would receive them, we grow in wisdom and knowledge as we seek to live like Christ. In his name we pray, amen. My people's greatest need is, fill in the blank, under the overarching umbrella heading of Christ. My people's greatest need is, how, how would you complete that? This was one of the things posed to us at our, at our E-Free National Conference this past week that, that really jumped out at me. And the answer, famously stated, is that my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Colin Smith explained to us that the greatest challenge in evangelical churches in America today is pastors and leaders that are godly. And what, and what our churches need are leaders who deny that which resists the reign and rule of Christ. You see, we, we all recognize the need and value of leadership. It's crucial to the success of any organization, whether it's in government, running a business, running a school, coaching a team, leading a church, or leading in the home. When an organization thrives, you can often point back to the leaders that were in place. You see, we recognize that leadership is influence. And we all are influenced or led by something, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so proper leadership is essential for the life of a local church. In some organizations, a, a person's character and conduct outside of the business or organization are oftentimes separated from their work life. Right? Perhaps you've, you've seen this or heard of this before, right? The home life is one thing. Perhaps they're failing at that. But it has little bearing on their leadership in their work or in their various job, as though the two could be separated, right? For example, I, ha I had no idea, I worked at Target before when I was in seminary, I had no idea what my, my manager at Target's home life was like. No idea. Or what he did in his spare time, I don't know. And yet, it, it, it didn't seem to have an effect on his, his leadership and the success in, our, in uh, leading us at, at Target's. And I imagine you could think of instances like this where one's character had no impact on one's ability to lead a group of, of people. This is often one of the questions that is debated in coaching classes. I recall in my coaching authorization class, we debated this. 
Can a coach be a good leader if his character is terrible? In management classes, this issue comes up as well. You see, but this is not the case, so we could debate that, but this is not the case when it comes to church leadership, which we'll see with the qualifications of elders and church leaders in general. There is a direct connection to one's character and leadership in the home or community and one's qualifications to lead the household of God. Direct connection. And that's what I want to draw your attention to this morning as we consider the necessity of elders and the qualifications for elders. So first, consider with me the necessity of elders. Elders are necessary for the spiritual growth and health of the church. Proper leadership is essential for the spiritual growth and health of a, of a local church. Not, not even just having elders, right? But proper leadership. Paul is first addressing the need for qualified elders, qualified spiritual leaders in the church. He's giving instructions for establishing church leadership. So look with me now, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Last week, we, we started this series in Titus, and we saw that, that Paul left Titus in Crete following a visit to the island. At some point in time, they, they visited the island of Crete, they evangelized, they made disciples, they established churches in these various cities. But for some reason, we don't know why, but Paul left the island, and he decided to leave Titus behind in Crete for a specific purpose. We see in verse 5 that he left him in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There was unfinished business on the island of Crete. So imagine starting a work project and then not finishing. Certainly we've all had something in our lives that, that we weren't able to get done, right? I've already described my situation at Target. I worked overnight, and so one of the things that we had to do is we had to unload trucks, okay? So we had a certain window from 10 o'clock till 6 o'clock in the morning where we had to unload the trucks, 2,500 boxes. We've got to unload them, push them to the floor, and then open up all of them up and put them on the shelf, put the items on the shelf. We didn't get done, all right? Especially during Christmas time when we get two trucks, we had unfinished work, unfinished business that needed to get taken care of. And so what we'd often do then is, all right, the next group comes in and you get to finish what we, where we left off, all right? Maybe, maybe this has happened to you in your work, right? Or maybe at your, in your house, maybe you're doing some project in your home or in your yard and, and there's a storm coming, right? You just can't get it done. You have to leave where you're at. Or maybe you have to leave a project unfinished because of finances, right? This happens. Or maybe, maybe you were working on your car when your wife goes into labor, That, that wouldn't have been me because I wouldn't have been working on my car in the first place. All right. Whatever the case might be, there, there's some project that is left unfinished. And it's so significant that you hand it off to someone else, it's another qualified person. And that's the situation for Paul. Titus, serving as Paul's representative and delegate, is to put what remained into order. 
He is to straighten out this situation like, like an orthodontist straightens crooked teeth. And, and those, who, those items are, that are involved here is one of them is ref, appointing elders in the various churches that were established. These were fairly new churches, much like a church plant. And the first order of business due to the reality of false teachers, was to establish church leaders. So Titus is directed to appoint elders in these local churches in Crete. Titus is in charge of putting others in charge. That's his job responsibility. And from from this passage, it's not entirely clear what this process looked like. Although we get some clues from Acts specifically in Acts 6.3, this same word appoint is used in the process of selecting and appointing the first seven deacons, which is the other official church office. And from that pattern, appointing elders would be the final step in the process in which they recognize leaders in the church who, who share various ministry responsibilities. And specifically in the New Testament, we recognize that, that there are three terms used to describe these spiritual leaders in the church. Elder, overseer, pastor. Elder, overseer, pastor. We, we see two of these terms in our passage this morning. Right? We, see, we see that they're used interchangeably, referring to the same office. It identifies the office and then the function of these spiritual leaders. I don't, I don't have t- time to unpack this. I wish I did. But here's some passages for your own study of this. Acts 20 Verse 17 and 28, right? Paul talking to the church, the elders in Ephesus. And then he tells them to oversee and shepherd the flock of God that's among them. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, Paul exhorts, uh, Peter exhorts the elders that are among them to, to provide oversight and to shepherd or pastor the flock that's among them. So here, here's what we learn. Elders... Men who have been recognized as mature spiritual leaders are primarily responsible to provide oversight and spiritual care for the flock of God that is among them. As they lead, shepherd, guide, and protect the church through the ministry of God's word. Let me say that again. Elders are men who have been recognized as mature spiritual leaders. Here's their responsibilities. Provide oversight and spiritual care for the flock of God that's among them. Right? I'm not an elder of someone else's church. Right? This is the flock that's among us. And what we do is we seek to lead, shepherd, guide, and protect the church through the ministry of God's word. Elders, proper leaders, are essential for the growth of the health and growth of a local church. This wasn't a trivial, trivial matter for the Apostle Paul. Titus and the church need to identify, they need to confirm leaders, they need to equip leaders so that the church wouldn't be vulnerable to the influence of false teachers or the society at large. Right? Ungodly living was, was common in that day. It's common in our own day. It's so prevalent on the island of Crete as it is even today. And so there's a need for proper leadership in the church. Let's commit ourselves then to the task of identifying and building up spiritual leaders. Right? So you think, how do I apply this to my life? Let's seek as a church to identify 
establish, build up leaders in our church. And, and even if you have no desire to ever be an elder, we need spiritual leaders in our home. We need spiritual leaders in our workplace. We need spiritual leaders in our community. Second, second, consider with me that the family qualifications for elders. When we look at the qualifications for elders, the primary emphasis is on their character. Godly character, more than giftedness, is the key quality, the central component for proper leadership of God's church. It's not about how gifted a person is. It's not about how well they can manage and influence people. It's not even about how much theological education they have or how many Bible verses they can recite. Are these things helpful? Yes, yes. And we'll see in a couple of weeks that doctrinal conviction is essential. Right? But, but that can't be separated from devotion to godly living. Right? The, the two go together. It's about godly character. I want to point this out because I don't want us to miss the emphasis in our text. Two times in this section, Paul says they must be above reproach. Did you catch that when I read it at first? Above reproach, above reproach. That, that's the theme. Elders must be above reproach in their own family. In verse 6, the proving ground for leadership and qualifications of an elder is his home life. It's his home it's the home where you find out what someone is truly like. It's the home where you find out what is truly a priority. It's the home where you see the messiness, how the messiness of life is handled. It's the home where you see how the blessings of life are, are handled. It's the home where you see how they relate to their wife or their children. If you want to find out what someone was like, the first people that you would probably interview would be who? The wife and kids. Their wife and children. So look with me, look with me at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Elders must be above reproach in the realm of their family. This is the overarching and general qualification that, that gets unpacked in this verse as it relates to family and then in the next verse as, as it relates to our moral conduct. So to be above reproach, the first idea of being blameless or a person of integrity, it's not perfection. It's not perfection, it's a, but it's a, it's a life characterized by godliness. It means that a person is free from blemishes of character or conduct. And specifically as it relates to the home, Paul unpacks two aspects of this. He's faithfully committed to his wife and his family. Notice verse 6. The husband of one wife. Literally, a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now, there's a lot of debate on this phrase, husband of one wife. Let me just briefly give you four ways, four different ways this phrase has been interpreted. And then I'll tell you where I stand. Now there's so much here. I don't have time to unpack all of this. Four ways. Number one, an elder must be married. Okay, so these are four ways people take this passage. 
these, these verse, this verse. An elder must be married. Number two, the second way a person takes it, an elder must not be a polygamist. Right? Therefore, therefore requiring one wife at a time. Right? Some take it referring to that, one wife at a time. Number three, an elder must have only one wife his entire life. One wife for a life. This is where the issues of, of a widow who remarries or a man who's been divorced and remarried comes into play. This view has a lot of plausible and possible arguments in favor of it. And then number four, an elder must be faithful to his wife. I'm not going to spend time unpacking them or explaining why I don't think Paul has in mind the first three options. Okay, I think he's taking this as, I take this as being faithful to his wife, the fourth option, literally a one-woman man. Here's how the New Living Translation interprets it. In verse 6, an elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife. So I would suggest that that seems to be what Paul's focus is here, that a man is, is devoted to his wife. He is deeply committed to his wife. He has affections for her. He is loyal to his wife. And in fact, I would actually argue that this is more demanding than the other three options. The elder literally must be a one-woman man. In other words, he must be above reproach with respect to his relationship with his wife. So the question that we could ask when considering elder candidates or prospective elders, is their life characterized by a love for their wife the way Christ loves the church? Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So men, okay, men, I'm speaking to men here, right? Everybody, all the men that are in the room, whether you aspire to the office of elder or not, love your wife the way Christ loves you. He gave himself for us by dying on the cross for our sins. He protects us. He provides for us. He promotes us. He sanctifies us, purifies us. And that's what we are called, men, husbands. That's what we are called to do for our spouses. We are to love our wives. We are to lead them and care for them and be devoted and committed to them. In, in our culture and society, it's so common and prevalent to give in to the temptation of adultery immorality and unfaithfulness to one's spouse. And how much greater testimony, how much greater is our testimony and the standard to which God's word is calling us? Marital faithfulness among the spiritual leaders in the church must be evident. Right? Men, whether you aspire to be an elder or not, this should be evident in your life as one who is seeking to know Christ. So let's seek to encourage and promote this in our church, right? Maybe it just begins with encouraging people, to their marriages, to spend time with each other, right? Becky and I, we had the privilege this past week to go to this national E-Free conference in, in uh, 
Naperville, Illinois, in the Chicago area. Just great for the two of us to spend time there. See friends, spend time, go out to eat together. Things that we don't normally get to do here in Glidden, Iowa, right? So just a blessing. Just even think of ways that you can encourage even married couples and how can you help others out in this. The second aspect that we see regarding the prospective elder's family life concerns his children's conduct. Here's another debated text in Christian circles. What does it mean when Paul says, and his children are believers? Did you catch that? If it refers to the children being saved, at what point do they need to become believers? Two, five, ten, thirteen, seventeen, eighteen? In order for their prospective elder to be qualified. You'll notice the footnote in the Pew Bible, which shows how it could be translated, and this is actually how I take it. Did you notice the footnote? I don't know if you've got that. The Pew Bible open, the footnote in the bottom. And his children are faithful. His children are faithful. And I think that's how it's being used here. The Christian Standard Bible translates it like this. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children. In a list of virtues where moral characteristics are laid out, this word has a sense of being faithful or trustworthy. Paul's describing the behavior of the children and not the status of the children. We see this same word faithful in verse 9. He must hold firm to the, and here it is, trustworthy word. That is, the faithful message. It, it faithfully represents the truth of the gospel. So I think that's how, it be, how it's being used here. An elder is to have faithful children. Not necessarily that they've come to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior yet, although that is our hope, that is our goal for all of our children, as they would trust in Christ alone for salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. So while under the leadership and authority of the father in the home, his children should be characterized by being faithful, trustworthy, respectful, and obedient. There's a parallel passage to this in 1 Timothy 3, 4. Here's what Paul says regarding elders in 1 Timothy 3, 4. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So that's the sense here. Paul is concerned about family leadership. What is demanded is not conversion or perfection, but the kind of parenting that produces faithful children. And notice how Paul continues. They're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. They're not wild. They're not disobedient. They don't have a rebellious spirit about them. Paul is not talking about occasional disobedience, but rather a deep-seated rebellion against the Father's authority and beliefs. This is how the false teachers were described in verse 10. They are, there are many who are insubordinate. So the implication then is that there are wild, insubordinate children they would be displaying a a dedicated, self-conscious 
opposition to the gospel that his father embraces. So an elder is to lead his family well in his home. His ability to lead will be reflected in his children's behavior. He should be committed to his wife and to his children, right? So there's a sense in which we place a high priority on how we are doing in our homes. And I would just say this as your pastor. Here's my order of priority. And I would encourage you to have this same order. God first, always. Family second. Work third. Everything else follows after that. Christ is first place always. And then it's devotion to family. Now, having Christ's first place in your life will result in being devoted to your family. You see? And then ministry. And if I notice practically, okay, so now I'm talking practically to you guys as well. If I notice practically that my family is suffering because of my ministry, then we need to step back and evaluate, right? Perhaps there are things that need to be let go of or or handed off. This might be true for you as well in the context and setting that the Lord has you in. I've seen too often, way too often, heard too many stories of men who have been so devoted to ministry or to their work that their families suffered because of it. And in fact, it led them away from the Lord and not to the Lord. Paul is making it clear that family leadership is connected to being qualified to being a spiritual leader in the church. Third, the moral qualifications for elders. Elders must be above reproach, not only in their family, but above reproach as stewards of God's family. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul draws an inference from what he stated regarding the prospective elders and their home life. He transitions from the sphere of one's family to the sphere of God's family, the church. And so he uses this term overseer to highlight the leader's obligation to oversee and protect those under their care. And he must be above reproach as God's steward. In other words, a church leader is a manager, so to speak, a manager of God's household. And since the elders manage God's household, they are to be blameless. As stewards entrusted with responsibilities within God's family, they are to be characterized by godliness. And Paul now unpacks what this looks like with this phrase above reproach. He gives five negative statements and then six positive traits. So I just want to briefly consider these traits. He must not be arrogant. So he's not characterized by selfishness. He's not overbearing. He's not one who constantly insists on his own way. But he considers the interests of others above his own. An arrogant person tends to neglect the concerns and feelings of others. He's not quick-tempered. 
He avoids strife. He, he's, he's not quick to quarrel or prone to anger. This would have been necessary in situations where there's, there's, they're filled with opposition right, from, from false teaching. Proverbs 29, 22 says that a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. An elder must not be drunkard or violent. These two terms often went together. Excessive drinking often led to violence. Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it will not become wise. A spiritual leader in the church should not be verbally or physically abusive or hurtful. They must not be bullies. That's the idea. They're not bullies. They, they shouldn't use their influence to be domineering or to be used for their own profit. They should not be greedy for gain. They shouldn't be lovers of money. And sadly, we see, we see situations like this where church leaders are in it for the money. They can take advantage of others and seek to profit at the expense of others. So those are the negative statements. We should avoid these issues, these vices, and not be characterized by them. And if you're a believer in Christ here this morning, my hope is that those things would not be a pattern in your life. If any of these things are a pattern in your life, confess it to the Lord. Ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins. Leave those things behind. Turn to Jesus. Because not only should we take things off, right? Take off the dirty old garment. Take off these dirty sins in our lives, which characterize our life before Christ. But we should be characterized by positive virtues, right? It's not enough to just say, oh, I don't do this. We can tell our children, oh, don't do this. That's not enough. Do this instead. That's the pattern in, in Scripture. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Put on the fruit of the Spirit. We need to put on Christ-like qualities. And notice the positive moral qualities here in verse 8. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. An elder in the church is to be hospitable. Literally, a lover of strangers, a lover of outsiders. Right, so we welcome outsiders. We welcome those who look differently than us, talk differently than us, act differently than us. All of us are commanded in 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We are to be lovers of good. Not just showing, not just knowing what is good and right, but actually loving it, having affection for what is good so that we might live it out. We should be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In other words, we are to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. We are to strive to do what's pleasing to God, keeping our desires under control. There's a lot more that we could say about these characteristics. But at the end of the day, and I think there's overlap in these for, for a reason. At the end of the day, all these characteristics are what we see displayed in our Savior Jesus Christ. 
He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is the one who fully displayed what it looks like to love outsiders as he died on the cross for his enemies. He displayed a love for that which is good, always doing his Father's will. When he was mistreated and suffered at the hands of sinful men, he exercised self-control as he entrusted his entire situation to God. He always did what pleased the Father. These characteristics that we see here, they should characterize us as elders, and not only us as elders, but all of us as Christians. Right? If you're a Christian here this morning, these should be characteristics in your own life because it's really a call to follow in the steps of our Savior, to live godly lives, to strive to do what pleases the Lord, to be above reproach, to be blameless, to be people of integrity in our home, in our church, and in our society. It's a call, certainly in applying specifically to prospective elders and leaders in our church, but for all of us to say, Lord, help me be like Jesus. Help me look like Jesus. And as a church, then, we should seek to identify Build up and equip leaders who look like Jesus in their home, in our church, and in the world. We need, we need to place a high priority on proper leadership if we're going to strengthen the health of a church and make a difference in the world around us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have the example of the greatest leader who ever lived the greatest shepherd and overseer of our souls, Jesus Christ. He sacrificially came to this earth, lived a perfect life, always did what pleased you. And he died on the cross, displayed his love for us so that we might be right with you by faith in him. And so I do pray for everyone in this room that we would all trust in Jesus, that we would all seek to live for him and live like him, and that we would all grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. And when we fail, that we would confess our sins, that we would turn to you, knowing that forgiveness is found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.